There's a quieter tone to our service today than most Sundays. There's a, a contemplative feel. The music, the solos, the, even, even the tone of the organ feels somewhat softer, gentler. And the psalm reading is certainly adding to that with that plaintive question. How long? Lord, how long will you answer? Do you hear my call? I suspect most of us have uttered words like those. Maybe this is the first time you've encountered Psalm 13, but surely you know this feeling in your heart and somewhere even in the depths of your soul. You've had a moment when you felt abandoned, forgotten, left behind. Maybe it was more than a moment. Maybe it was a day or a season, a year, or even a life when that question just seems to hover over everything that you encounter. How long, Lord? How long will I be left behind? Several years ago, I directed a summer camp for fourth and fifth graders. As part of that, that work, it was a week-long experience. I, I was really looking forward to uh, enjoying sort of that happy-go-lucky feeling that, that younger children tend to bring to their church camp experience. I was a youth minister back in those days and tended to work mostly with middle school and high school kids. And uh, teenagers are great, but sometimes they bring a little extra anxiety with all the change going on in their, in their lives and the worry about what's going to happen next when they get out of school and with college or work or whatever might be coming. So I was looking forward to just hanging out with the kids and playing hard during the day and, and singing fun songs at night and maybe encountering a little bit of our faith too. And so on the last night of our camp, I gave a campfire talk on, on finding faith and what it means to discover your faith. When the talk was over, I said to the kids, if anybody would like to hang around the campfire and talk some more about this, please do. Well, one of the counselors came over and sat with me and several kids joined around us and they made comments about the talk and about their church and their faith and had a couple of questions. And then one young boy, his name was Bobby. He said, I, I wonder, I wonder, my parents got a divorce. And I thought life was going to be pretty terrible. But a year later, they both got remarried, and I thought, well, okay, now I'm going to get two families, and that means more presents at Christmas time. <laughs> and then Bobby said, but instead of getting two families, it feels like I've been forgotten. It feels like I've been pushed aside. It feels like I'm, I'm not their son. I'm, I'm just a scheduling problem. Who's going to pick them up when? Who's going to drop them off where? There were tears in his eyes as he told us this story. Everybody else in the group was, was very quiet. He looked right at me then. He said, Glenn, I asked God for help. I spoke out loud. I said, God, I, I want to feel your presence. I want you to answer my questions. I want you to help me and my family. Please, God, please. And as his tears streamed down his face, he said, I still haven't heard. I still haven't heard. I, I, I don't know if little Bobby knew Psalm 13. But he understood the pain of the poet. Oh, Lord, how long? How long? He was only nine. But he discovered what you and I already know so well. We, we, many of us live our lives between faith and fear, worry and hope, belief 
and doubt. Last fall, I conducted a funeral service for a man that I'd known for many years. He'd lived well into his 90s, was a strong leader in the church, a well-known leader, respected leader in the community, someone who'd given his heart and soul to his family, to the congregation where he worshiped, and to the community in which he lived. A wonderful man, a man who helped me on many, many occasions in my own life and in my ministry. Towards the end, he knew his life was ending. So he gathered several friends and family and a couple of his pastors together to talk about his funeral and what he wanted to have done and said. He said to us, my favorite Bible verse, and I want it read on that day, is Mark 9.24. Do you know that off the top of your head? It's, it's Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I was surprised that that was his favorite verse, but he went on to say, I've spent my whole life believing and wanting to believe and wanting to believe even more, and yet I find that unbelief and doubt seems to come in through the side door. I've spent my whole life on that space between those sentences. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's something courageous about the willingness of a soul to say those words out loud, knowing, knowing that his life is coming to an end. To name the doubt while moving forward in faith is perhaps the essence of what it means to be a believer, to be a follower of the one we name Jesus. So really this morning we can say, whether you're 9 or 90 or somewhere in between, these questions, these, these feelings of doubt and worry, of faith and unbelief, are things that many of us, if not all of us, have experienced. I, and I, I need to let you know that preachers are not immune to this either. Barbara Brown Taylor, who's one of my favorite preachers, she says that every preacher she's ever met, if she or he is honest, will tell you, that Mark 9.24 is true for them. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Sometimes, in fact, the most difficult thing I do every week is climb these little stairs at the back of the pulpit here, wondering that if, even though there are words on my manuscript, wondering if I'm going to be able to get the words out of my mouth, wondering if out of fear and worry and doubt, I'll be able to present a word of hope and, and faith. I suppose that it's dangerous for me as your new pastor, only in our first year together, to confess this sense, this feeling. But there is much to be said for truth-telling. There have been moments in my life when I've wondered, when I've doubted. I've buried five babies. That's five too many. I've listened as both women and men have shared stories of horrific abuse I've seen teenagers break down in absolute emotional rubble over the terror of their family. I, I, I could give you story after story after story. I've seen families in, in soul-crushing poverty that would just tear your very heart from your chest. Doubt creeps in when sorrow and fear and anxiety are real. How long, how long, the psalmist asks, how long, Lord, how long? This, this opening question in the, in the word today is followed by several more plaintive calls and cries, asking God for a reply, for a sign, for, for anything. You know, I grew up being told that we were not to question God, that we were to accept the way things are and just move on, be afraid of God, don't ever question God. But, the, you know, the Bible itself actually argues against that. Psalm 13 is an illustration of 
the willingness of the poet, of the preacher, of this prophet, whoever he might be, to look up at the, at the heavens and ask God, how long? Do you hear me? Do you not see that I'm abandoned? I'm alone? The Bible is full of stories like this. Moses, in, in the Exodus, makes the, the hike up to the top of Mount Sinai, and Moses says to God, tell me, what is your name? I want to know who you are. You read between the lines, you can almost see God's face smiling. It's almost as though God is saying, well, good for you, Moses. Finally, someone who wants to know. There's that wonderful story of Jeremiah who's like 15 or 16 years old when the call of God comes to him. And Jeremiah basically says, are you kidding me? I'm just, I'm in the youth group. Don't call me. I can't be a prophet in Israel. And God smiles again. Says, thank you for asking, but no, I'm calling you. Job is 37 chapters long before we hear from God. It's 37 chapters of Job shaking Job's fist against the heavens, fighting and arguing with his friends, with his wife, with anyone who will dare to challenge his views. He finally does get an answer from God, although it's not the one that he'd longed for, but it was enough. But here's the thing. This psalmist is doing more than ask questions. He's making a declaration. He's letting God know that he feels abandoned and in distress. He's more than a petition and a question for help. He's making a protest. Lord, don't you see? I'm abandoned. I'm lonely. These questions really are declarative statements about what he's experiencing in life, how frightened he is. I'm pretty sure that you know how, how this works. Maybe, maybe you've had a conversation like this in, in your house. You sit down, you're ready to watch the baseball game, and your spouse says to you, oh, before you sit down, could you walk the dogs and take out the trash and get the dishes done, please? In my house, that is not a question. <laughs> That's a declarative statement. You will, before you watch the game, get those things done. And yes, by the way, we do share, we do share the chores in our house. That, that's kind of a lighthearted example of what, the, of, of what the, the psalmist himself is doing here. He's asking questions, but in between the lines, he's really declaring to God, Lord, you're quiet. You're absent. You're doing nothing. Be present to me. It's technically a prayer for help, but it, more than that, it's a protest. And what I love about this, this text being included in the Bible, it reminds us that no one, no matter who you are or where you are or what you've done or what you might be doing or where you might be going, there is no one who is kept from speaking to God this way. No one. The Bible makes it clear. Our faith makes it clear. Even though doubt is hiding around the corner, his willingness to call out in distress is a sign that he may still believe, by the way, somewhere deep in his soul, that somehow he still matters to God. This cry, this fist shaking, this worry and wonder and doubt may be a sign that somewhere deep, deep within, he actually believes that he might matter to God still. Martin Luther, the great German theologian, said, Hope despairs, but despair hopes. That's not an easy place to live, I know. We, we prefer clear lines, black and white answers with, with strict, clear understandings of how, how things happen in the, in the world. Maybe, maybe even we'd like an easy faith, a faith that comes gently and simply and, and quietly. But I've got to tell you, there's, there's great danger there, though. 
there's great danger there. My, my buddy Bob Cornwall is a great preacher, a talented uh, biblical scholar. He's at a church up in, in Detroit and doing very well. But 20 years ago, Bob was fired by the very conservative Christian college out in Kansas where he was serving as a professor. Bob was fired for being too liberal. Now, Bob will tell you that all of his conservative friends thinks, think that he's too liberal, but his liberal friends think he's too conservative. He basically says to me, every Sunday, I'm in trouble with half my congregation. It doesn't matter. But he tells a story about his successor at the school that let him go, about the man who followed him. This man was a rigid, strict fundamentalist theologian. He argued very carefully for, the, for taking the Bible literally, for, for proving every historical fact that was there, until 15 years later he realized it was intellectually impossible for him to do so. And in that realization, he lost his faith. He lost everything. He would proclaim to you now that he is an atheist. In the search for absolute certainty, he instead found nothing but darkness and doubt. What, what, what my buddy Bob wants to describe is the, is the willingness to live within the questions, to recognize the mystery, to stand, to stand with that father in, in Mark 9, 24, who declares, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Do you find yourself in that space between those two statements? Do you oftentimes find yourself stuck there? Sometimes you find yourself on the, on the unbelief side, waiting, hoping, wondering if someone will ever pull you to the other. Really, most of us, most of us, live in the tension between the two. And by living there, it gives us the ability to protest, to petition, and finally, finally to praise. I hope you heard the, the psalm as we read it together this morning. He declares at the end, I trusted in your steadfast love, and I will sing to the Lord. Somehow he's had an experience of love. He's not given the answers to his questions. He's not given a, a tablet with a sign written upon it. There's no sign in the sky. There's nothing that speaks to him beyond the simple beauty of God's love somehow and in some way being made real to him. It was the assurance of God's love not the answers to his questions that helped him find faith. When I was a little boy, about eight years old, we had a cat. His name was Willie Mays. It, it really was. By the way, Willie Mays is the greatest baseball player of all time, just in case you're curious. Somebody, somebody at the early service this morning said, you mean better than Pete Rose? And we're going to have a conversation later this week about that. Anyway, Willie every day would greet me at the door when I would come home from school. You know how cats are. They come up against you and they rub up against you and he'd kind of weave in between my ankles and rub and purr and kind of chatter a little bit to me and then run to the back of the house and I'd go back and follow him. It was a little ritual we had every single day. And then one day after a couple of years, Willie wasn't there. I looked everywhere. I looked all through the living room and the kitchen. I went upstairs to my bedroom, looked in the closet under the bed, looked in my sister's room. No Willie. I remembered that our, our house had a crawl space, so I went underneath the house, I opened that little door, and got down on my hands and knees and crawled in there. And there he was. He'd been poisoned. My, my little cat. I was terribly sad. I went to my father and said, what do we do? And, and Dad, Dad was a pastor, and he was a, a good one. He said, well, let's, let's have a little service for, for Willie. So my sisters and I gathered in our backyard and dad dug a hole and we wrapped him carefully, put him in a box, put the cat in a box and, 
and buried him. And my dad was wearing his black preacher suit, his skinny little black tie, and, and, and just treated that service like it was the most important service of the year, because as far as we were concerned, it was. And we buried our little kitty. Three days later, my sister Carolyn dug him back up. <laughs> I'm not sure why to this day, other than she said she just wanted to play with him again. Have you ever seen a cat after it's been in the grave three days? Have you ever? It was not a pleasant sight. So we had a reburial and another little brief service. But then that night, I woke in the middle, in the middle of the darkness, crying. I called out for my daddy, for my dad. He came into my room, sat next to me on my bed. He said, Glenn, what's wrong? I said, Daddy, I don't want to die. Daddy, what happens when you die? Where do we go? What, what will God do to us? And I wish I could replay the entire conversation for you. I don't remember what my father said, except for what he said at the very end. He had a hold of my hand. And he said, Glenn, I, I don't know the answers to all the questions. I know that your mom and I love you, and I know that God loves you. And that's all I know. And in that moment for me, it was enough. I didn't get answers to my questions. The darkness remained. But the promise of mom and dad's love was more than enough to get through the night, to wait for the sunrise, to begin again. Marjorie Suhaki, one of the most brilliant theologians I've ever read, proclaims, the edges of God are tragedy. The depths of God are joy, beauty, resurrection, life. The edges of God are tragedy, but the depths of God are joy, beauty, resurrection, life. There's great truth in what she shares. Too often we Christians forget that, the, that our faith was founded. The most beautiful and inspiring scriptures in the Bible were written during times not of prosperity and peace, but of turmoil and fear. Think of the, 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 the most, the most well-known verse in the Bible, Psalm 23, the most beautiful chapter in the Bible, that old ancient psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's in an experience of death, in the shadow of darkness, in the shadow of fear and doubt and worry, where those beautiful words are composed. Think of our own faith. Founded not in a, in, a, in a place where everything was comfortable and smooth and easy, where democracy was the rule of the day and everyone had enough to eat. No, no, no. It's founded in Palestine, where Roman rule, rule, where Roman rule overpowered everyone. Where if you got in their way, they gave you a cross. We know of the cross of Jesus, but maybe many of us don't know that thousands and thousands and thousands of persons were crucified by Rome. Any time you dared to challenge them, any time you dared to get in their way, you were nailed up onto a cross. And it's in the shadow of one particular cross where the Prince of Peace, the Lamb of God, the Lord of Lords, has been executed, where our faith is founded. It was in the darkness of doubt, in the unbelievable midnight of death, where God's love proclaimed to the world, it is stronger, I am stronger than death itself. It was there that our faith began, that our belief took root. You know, while, while preparing for this sermon, I made a list of all the tough times I've encountered in my life. Times when things weren't going very well. Times when I, I thought things were at times maybe even unfair. I looked at the list pretty carefully. 
It wasn't a pleasant thing to do. Have, have you done that before? Uh, have you ever made a list of when you've encountered some tough stuff? Don't do it. <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of a frightening thing, and yet I'm glad I did. Because I also recognized as I looked over that list, almost in every single instant, as hard as whatever the moment was, my faith was renewed, strengthened. I, as I look in the, almost like the rearview mirror of my life, and I look in that mirror and I look to, the, to see where I've been and where I might be going next, I can see that when it felt as though there was nothing but darkness and fear, actually my faith was being renewed. I found that God was able to speak to me in ways that I had not been able to hear before. Did this happen overnight? No, 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 no. But did it happen? The answer is yes. G.K. Chesterton, the great British poet, says, from the mountaintop one sees small things, from the valley we see great things. From the mountaintop everything seems so small and far away. We almost prefer that. But in the valley, as we look up, what do we see? Nothing but the greatness and goodness of God. Are you full of doubt? Have you had some hard questions that you've been wanting to shout at heaven while shaking your fist? Well, good. What a, op what a wonderful opportunity you have. Speak boldly. Question directly. And then listen. Listen as the God of all speaks. May God bless us in this infinite quest as together we move forward in faith and hope.